0: So I thought this morning, as we're talking about how God loves people, how Jesus specifically loved people, that we would start with a prayer from a death row inmate in Tennessee. Heavenly Father, I am nothing, and I have nothing, and nothing from nothing leaves nothing, so I have only you. Jeff and I were talking about how we were going to start this service, how we were going to start this series. And I am sneaking off to North Carolina for the next two weeks. Cleverly, I get to dodge all the Easter egg filling. I know. I'm heartbroken. And Jeff was asking, well, where are we going to start? If you're preaching this, where are you going to start? And that was kind of a duh for both of us. Because I immediately went Matthew 25. And he went, well, there's nobody else who can do that. So we will be in Matthew 25... Starting in verse 31, where it reads, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the extent that you did it to the least of one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Now, for those of you who know me well, please do not have a panic attack. We are not covering this entire passage, because we would be here until well, Easter. I want to spend our time today on two verses. Verse 35 and 36. See, there are people in our society that no one wants to talk about. There are a people that it's easier to ignore, because to look at them, and see them as people and not as statistics, is a screaming declaration of our failure as a church, as our failure as Christians, as our failure to love as Jesus loved. These are the people on the fringe of our society, the hungry, the thirsty, the prisoner, the stranger, the sick, and those without the basic necessities of life. It's easy to look at them and say, there's a failure. That is a logical consequence of your sins and shortcomings, so sit there and live with it. But if we see them as God sees them, and if we love them as God calls us to love one another, then we discover one of the great truths of the Bible. We are the hungry, the thirsty, the prisoner, the stranger, the sick, and the naked. We are all, each and every one of us, fringe people. The reason that we can sit in here today comfortable, well fed, well clothed, is that at some point Jesus came out to the fringe and got us. There's no way out aside from Christ. You will spend an eternity trapped in the fridge, both, fringe, both on this plain, and the next, unless Jesus reaches out. So there are two things I want to look at today. I'm going to make a basic argument. One, to be a Christian is to be by definition a Christ follower. So, if Christ went out and cared for these people, then we as Christ followers must do so as well. The second part is an even more powerful argument that if Christ did infinitely more for you personally, then we have no reason not to be out serving those in need. If he gave us so much, how can he, how can we deny giving others so little? So we'll start in verse 35 and it says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Well, we see in Matthew 14, 14, Uh, Speaking of Jesus, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the village and buy food for themselves. And Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we only have five loaves and two fish, and he said, bring them he, bring them here to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking towards heaven, he blessed the food, breaking the loaves, and he gave them, the, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. Now when we come to this passage, Jesus is absolutely exhausted. While it's easy to remember Jesus is God, it gets easy to set aside that man thing. That Jesus was fully man. That when he worked a full day, he needed sleep. He gets so tired at one point in the Bible, he falls asleep in the middle of a storm in an open boat using a pillow while the waves wash over and the wind beats on him. He's exhausted. He's tired. It would be really easy to say, All right, I've taught you all the good stuff. Because the disciples aren't wrong. They have gone a very long way with Jesus. And to get back is the opposite. A very long way. But Jesus is not heartless. He cannot look at the hungry and go, Well, you know, there are lots of social programs out there. There are lots of other people who will reach out and feed you. When it says he had compassion, it's not, that's sad. It's The word for compassion is to be felt within the viscera, within the bowels. It is where you look at someone and you hurt so badly for them, your stomach wrenches. When you are so moved with hurt and ache and desperation to solve that suffering, you feel it in your guts. And he reaches out and he does the simplest of things. He feeds them with bread, and fish. And you go, yeah, that's great, but he fed the thousands, and we, do, we don't have Jesus to feed the thousands. You do, though. Because the God that powered this is the God who promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. And if he sits there, if his spirit resides within you, why do you fear feeding people? Because God already did so much more for you. It says in John 6.32, It is uh, my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And he said to them, And then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. We are the starving Each one of us, before we came to know Christ, was starving to death. We put things in our spirit to try and fill that empty hole, and no matter what we did, it got bigger. No matter what we fed it, we got hungrier. We tried alcohol, we tried drugs, we tried sex, we tried money, we tried power, we tried influence. We lived the hedonistic lifestyle. This will work, this will work, and every time, it always failed. But Jesus says that He will be your nourishment. He will fulfill every spiritual need. When He says, I am the bread of life, it's not simply a declaration that He is something. It is an announcement that He is God. He says, Yahweh, I am. And every time He says it, you notice that the Jewish leaders lose their minds. We're going to kill him. We're going to destroy him. We're going to throw rocks at him. We're going to try and push him off a cliff. Because they had no illusions as to what he was saying. He was saying, I am the God of healing. I am the God that feeds. I am the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. say, well, I want this bread of life. That body broken on a cross is our bread. We say, well, it's so much work to go out there and to feed people. I've got to leave the house, and I've got to get ready, and i got to do that. And then we look at the cross, and we go, thank you, Jesus, for all you have done for me. But I'm not going to worry about what you tell me to do for others. But Jesus doesn't just say, feed them and be done. He says, care for them. It's not enough to just hand someone bread and go, all right, good luck. He doesn't just focus on this one aspect of life. He continues on. He says, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Well, in Matthew 10.40, it says, He who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me and he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man reward and whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink truly I say to you he shall not lose his reward. Now, I love this passage, and it's kind of more of a metaphor, but the reason I chose it as an example of Jesus giving water to the thirsty is where he says, little ones. Gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water. Because you look in the Greek, little ones does not just mean small in stature. Little ones are the insignificant. Little ones are the ones that the world looks at and says they aren't that important. It's like I gave a cup of water to Billy Graham. I gave one to the Pope. I gave one to the President. I'm important. Jesus says, go give it to that random kid out on the street who knows nobody, whose name you will never learn, who your feats will never be called out to, you will never be praised or honored or celebrated, and you will still have a reward in heaven. Because what your Father sees, He rewards. And it's not the significance. Of the person. It's the person that makes the significance. Every single person we meet. Every single person we care for. Is an honored precious gift of God. If you really want to know how important the least of these are. All you need to do is figure out how much they're worth. And the way you figure out how much they're worth. Is to figure out how much someone is willing to pay for them. To hang on a cross, naked, beaten, unrecognizable as a man, with the beard ripped out of your face, and pray for those hanging there or hanging you there and spilling your eternal blood when you don't have to. That's how valuable the least of these is to Christ. But it's not just the general people. Christ has given each one of us. It says in John 7.37, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, and Scripture says, from his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. Christ invited each one of us for spiritual, eternal, life-giving Soul-saving drink. It says on the last night when He's with His disciples, He raises up the cup and says, This is the blood of the new covenant. Jesus gave you an eternity at His expense. We could never earn it. We could never deserve it. We could never find it on our own. We could never be smart enough, pretty enough, rich enough, powerful enough to Get there. We can never do enough good deeds to earn Jesus' love. And he says, I know it, and I'm going to die for you anyways. I'm not going to die just to save you. I'm going to die so you have the opportunity to ignore me. So that you might have a choice. So that you might be free. And we say, well, do I have to? No, you don't. Every single one of us has been given the choice. Every single one of us has the opportunity to turn away. But if you who have been given living water can ignore the desperate need of those who simply need a drink, it is a hard-heartedness that becomes difficult to understand. It's a hard-heartedness that will not stand up to examination. See, I don't think anybody gets up and goes, you know what I want to do today? I want to neglect the least of these. I want to take the people Jesus died for, and I want to laugh at them. The problem is, is that we have gotten in such a habit of looking over the top of them that we don't see people anymore. We see the bum. We see that homeless guy. We see the sign and roll up our window and kind of not look at them. Now, I, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but if you can see them through the window of your car, they can see you looking away. They know you refuse to meet them in the eye. I was talking to a homeless guy, and I said, what's the worst part? I said, is it being homeless? Is it, it's like, no. It's like not being a person is the worst part, because people won't even look at me. I didn't have anything to give this guy, so I sat down and I talked to him. And I'm sitting there in the park, talking to this guy, And he says, nobody even acknowledges I'm a person. People look at the least of these, and they don't see the image of God. They just see a statistic, a number. Look at people. Really see them. Recognize them not as an extra in the play of your life. Recognize you as the supporting cast in your own life. And they are the star. And the hard-heartedness goes away. Because they become what they are. They become what God made them in your eyes. It says, uh, continuing in 35, I was a stranger and you invited me in. I love this verse. It says in Mark uh, 2.15, And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating with those tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician. But those who are sick, I did not call to come the right, called the righteous, but sinners. Now, this picture takes a second to develop. Because a tax collector is the lowest of the low. Now, whenever a Greek, whenever you would write in the Greek style, it was not who was first. It was who was most important to your point, they got listed first. So you've got a bunch of sinners. Yeah, they're bad, but we've got tax collectors. You notice over and over again, it says tax collectors and sinners. See, the way a tax collector made his living is he took a cut of the taxes taken. But now for any of you who know Roman history, you know you start taking money that um, Rome believes it's owed, and you're going to be up on a cross, So you collect Rome's taxes, then you tack a little more on. Well, if a little's good, a lot is better. And you rob these people blind. And you betray your people to an occupying nation. You betray your family. You are immediately excommunicated from the synagogue. You are a shame for generations to your family. Pharisees, Sadducees, respectable people will cross streets to avoid you. Because you are looked at as someone who has taken the holiness of God, the importance of community, the love of family, and set it behind an adoration of cash. So we've got tax collectors scattered around. But it's not just tax collectors. Because among the tax collectors are a bunch of sinners. And the sinners were the people who would not meet the holy standards of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're the people who would look at the customs of society and not... Meet them. They were the lowly shepherds who could not be ceremonially clean. They were the sick. They were the zealots. They were the fighters, the warriors, the antisocial, the people nobody else wanted around. And Jesus was looking out at the religious leaders, at the people who supposedly had their lives together, the people who were in the temple and were important. And we're religious, and we're smart, and we're valuable to the society. And he said, I'm not a glutton, and I'm not a sinner, but these are the people I came for. These are the people who can come to me because they have recognized their need. Now, people ask me, why do you go to the prison? I spent almost my seventh year in the prison. They say, why do you keep going back? And I always say, because ministry there is so easy, it feels like I'm cheating. Why? Because I come out into suburbia and I say, You need Jesus. And they go, I got a BMW. I don't know what that has to do with BMWs and Jesus. Well, I got a four bedroom house. Okay. And I got three kids, and all of them have AB averages, and we go to a great school district, and none of us are hungry, and so I don't need Jesus. Life is good. I go into the prison and I say, You need Jesus. And they go, Duh. Are you happy with your life? And they look at me like I'm mentally handicapped. I'm in prison for 25 years. I have a third grade education and all I know how to do is sling crack. No, I'm not happy. Awesome. Because you see your need. And to see the need... To be out where the suffering is the worst. To be among the stranger. Pouring out God's love means 99% of the work is done for you. Because at that point, all you got to do is say, well, follow me. I met this incredible guy. And you say, well, you don't understand. They're so much worse. No, they aren't. Their sins are just a little more public. Some of the best Christians I have ever met will die in prison. Some of the finest men I have ever met died on the streets. Each one of us came to Christ's table, a sinner, a stranger from God, and he said, I love you. In fact, it says in Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Now, people do not understand the scope of what is involved in coming to Christ. Because you will say, I was saved from my lying. Yeah, lying's line's pretty bad. I was saved in adultery. Well, adultery's pretty bad. Saved from alcohol or drugs or whatever your particular sin is. And we go, yeah, that's pretty bad. And God says, no, you weren't saved from that. You were saved from open rebellion against me. You went to war with God and God saved you from yourself. And we say, but they're so much worse than me. Well, they're fighting the same war you tried to fight. And if they... if you can be saved, then so can they. Because the only difference between the worst of them and the best of us is Christ and Christ alone. I was a stranger of God. I was bitter, miserable. I hated everyone and everything. And The longer I spent alone, the more bitter I got. The more bitter I got, the more I hated. And the more I hated, the more people didn't want to be around me. And in the end, I'm trapped in this cycle. I can't get free. And everything, well, I don't know how to describe it in church. It was a nightmare. Everything was a mess. Everything I touched fell apart. Everyone I knew walked away. Finally, I go, fine. I'm done. Jesus, there you go. It's a mess. You deal with it. Jesus goes, awesome. I've been waiting for this mess. And all of a sudden, I got my eyes open. Because I go to church and I start listening to these testimonies. And I realize I'm not special. And not being special is the most amazing feeling in the world because I I tell people in the clinic, I'm like, wow, when we go through all their uh, medical stuff, I go, you're downright boring. And that's a wonderful thing to be in a doctor's office because the problem with Bob Smith syndrome is the person it kills first is always Bob Smith. To have your eyes open and realize you're not enough is to realize you're not alone. To realize you can be saved because so many more before you have been already. It's not our job to save them. But it's our job to see them and recognize them and love them as Jesus called us to. It says in verse 36, naked and you clothed me. Now, this does not literally mean someone is sitting outside on the street naked. I would hope if you walk across a naked person sitting in the middle of the street, you would at least do something. That's gigantic and hard to miss and easy to take care of because here's a coat. Now you're not naked. Super. No, what this means is that you lack the basic necessities of life. It's to say you have clothes, but you don't have clothes that are going to keep you warm. You have clothes, but you don't have clothes that will protect you from the desert sun. James says in uh, chapter 2, verse 15, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Wow. Wow. God's word says what use is prayer. Because that's what this translates into. What this means is when you look at it, it's the equivalent of us walking by and thoughtlessly saying, well, God bless you. Or saying, may God take care of you. And if you're the cynical sort, which I still tend to be, you can translate it into, God take care of you because I'm not going to. To be cold, to be exposed to the world, to be vulnerable to the elements and realize no one cares is a horrible feeling. Think of you at your most vulnerable. Maybe it's not physically, maybe it's emotionally, maybe it's spiritually, maybe it's mentally. But to have people around you say, you know what, this is terrible, but I'm going to walk with you. That takes a situation that is unbearable and makes it something you can get through. But not only get through, celebrate in. Because even though you lacked a little, you had friends come alongside, you had family come alongside and love you. Our our Father, our Heavenly Father, Calls us. He says, Why are you on the couch? He says, Why are you comfortable when there are so many in pain? He says, They need clothing, so put on your armor, which I freely gave you, and go out. You know, forget the armor, forget the benefits. What Christ truly clothed us in should drive us out into the streets and droves. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, But when this perishable will have put on imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death is a great equalizer. Each one of us will face it. There are many of us in this room who will spend our life fighting it. Through medicine, care, through comfort. But you can't stop it. Every single one of us must face death till the Lord returns. Man has spent his entire existence looking for immortality, ways to avoid death, and yet, still, each one of us must answer that call. But then Christ comes along. And he says, death. Death stops being a terror and starts being a transition because of what I do on the cross. That I will clothe you in immortality, in per- imperfect flesh. That I will give you a life that you always dreamed of freely, without expectation of payment, because you can never earn it. Without expectation of performance, because he knows we're going to fail. I mean, what would you charge someone for immortality? You could always ask for more. I want fifty percent of what you make until the end of time. They'd be like, That's fair trade. God says, go care for those who need you. I say Oh, it's a lot of work. Because we're so earthly focused, we miss the heavenly importance. That physical stuff is gone anyways. How many shirts have you bought, worn twice, and then sent to Goodwill? How many pair of shoes do you have? Speaking to some of the ladies in the room. And some of the guys, in all honesty. (laughs) you have a closet full of clothes that God has provided through his providence. And we say, well, that guy out there needs to get his own. It says in verse 36, uh, continuing in 36, I was sick and you visited me. Matthew 8, 2, it says, And a leper came to him and bowed down before him, speaking of Jesus, and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now the Mosaic law says you will never touch a leper. Why? Well, there's no cure. So the way the religious leaders look at it, the only thing you're doing is putting yourself at risk. You aren't actually able to help them. Imagine A life with no physical contact. Imagine a life where when people come near, you have to scream, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. Separated from your family, separated from all that you hold dear, all of it gone. And Jesus reaches out and lays his hand on this person and says, I am willing to be cleansed. There are people who know this feeling. And they lay in hospital beds every day. To lay in a hospital bed, wrapped in your own mortality, ignored by everyone else because they don't want to face theirs, is one of the loneliest places in all of the world. One of the greatest comforts I have ever been, ever. Didn't require a Bible. Didn't require knowledge. Didn't require a title or all the student loans that I've accumulated through school. I was working in the ER. Had an old man come in. No ID. No idea who he was. He was dying. There was nothing we could do for him. I sat there and I held his hand. He dies not alone, but at least with someone who cares about him. To hold a hand, a comforting word, someone to share a life with. Imagine all you have learned, just gone. Imagine someone who sits there beside you, says, tell me what you know. What should I learn from? How can you share with me? What can I pass on to the world that you've accumulated? And how valuable that is. Because as powerful as that is, Jesus did so much more. It said in 1 Peter 2.24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. What I call you to is comfort and kindness. What Jesus gives you freely is sacrifice and pain and suffering. He was punched, spit, mocked, struck with rods, kicked over, had a crown of thorn rammed on his head, his beard ripped from his face, scourged, crucified, stabbed. For you, individually, each one. So that you might be made well. So that you might be healed And the thing that still amazes me time after time after time is no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down freely. I mean, when that verse really kind of settles in, everything will change as a Christian. Jesus didn't get murdered. No one went up to Jesus and killed him. He allowed himself to die. So that we might be healed. At any point. He stops the existence of the universe itself. He says that these people are not worth it. At any point. He calls down 12 legion of angels. And wipes out the world. And says these people do not deserve me. Instead. He looks up to heaven. And says father forgive them. They know not what they do, and hanging on that cross is the greatest punishment of all, because in the first time in eternity, he is separated from the Father, as God pours all his wrath onto him and turns his back, says, "You have to pay this price." Each one of us, sick and dying, each one of us lost and broken. And Christ said, you be healed. And I'm going to steal a line from one of my favorite pastors. Tony Evans says, you are not blessed just for a gift. You are blessed to be a blessing. You are grace-filled to be graceful. You are mercy-given to be merciful. Each one of us is given a special talent, a special gift, but each one of us is also called to care for the least of these. See, one of the great problems with our church today is we are paralyzed by decision. What is God's will for my life? I don't know what God's will is. Do I go through this door? Do I buy a Toyota? Do I eat this for dinner? On and on and on and on. And we keep constantly looking for God's will. People go, well, how did you know the will? your will for God's life? And I said he wrote it down. Put it in Matthew 25 and said, go do this said, so, well, how do you know that was meant for you? And I said, well, it's the Bible. Now, if we truly believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, if we truly believe this is in the inerrant Word of God equipping us for every good work, why are we not out doing the good work? People are dying not knowing Christ. People are dying in misery and agony. People are dying in lack and suffering and famine. And we're comfortable. My son and I went out to Life in Christ Community Church. Every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, they feed the homeless. Some kids walk in there. Kids, children, like yours. Sat down at a table... Filthy. These kids smelled like they lived in a zoo. Their skin is four shades darker than it should be from the filth that surrounds them. And David takes plates out to them. And you see his little worldview just go... Why are their kids in a homeless shelter? Why are their kids here for free food? We are called to love these people. We are called to serve these people. And church is great, but church must be what church was intended to be. This is where everybody gets sharpened and then sent out into the fields to harvest. This is not the place to where we go, look at me, I'm saved and I'm done. You know, there's a guy named C.T. Studd. Ever get to change my name? I want a name as cool as Pastor Stud. That—that would—it's like, hi, I'm Pastor Stud. I'm awesome and suave and everything I'm not. And he said, some people want to live within the sound of church and chapel bell. As for me, I'll set up a mission within a yard of hell. That's where we need to be. To come into church and try and be Christian is great. But sometimes I feel like we're selling ice cubes to Eskimos. Because as Christians, what we sell is grace and hope and love. Why are we not going out to the people with no hope, with no love, with no grace? Saying, here's this amazing thing, freely given and freely handed over. Now the last one is my special place. It says in 36, I was in prison and you came to me. This is where I'll go tomorrow night. People go, why would you go to prison? They're convicts. They're evildoers. They're wrong. They deserve what they've gotten. Anybody here willing to get what they deserve? Anybody here willing to stand before God on that great day, before that white throne and say, no, I don't want mercy. I want justice. Give me what I deserve. I, I can't imagine you'd survive the laughter. People go, you know where you're going, right? So we, we look at these people and we go, they're bad. They're murderers. Well, so, were, so was Moses. So was David. They're thieves. Well, so they're persecutors. They they hurt the innocent. Well, so is Paul, and he wrote half our New Testament. They're betrayers. So is Matthew. In fact, I would suggest think carefully before you label. But you go talk to a Pharisee and Jesus is nothing but a common criminal. There are incredible people in the prisons. There are incredible people in the homeless shelters and the detoxes and the mental health units and the hospices. Just waiting for someone to reach out and say, I love you. And I care about you. We have that shooting in Florida. 19 year old kid. Dad's dead. Mom dies of flu, kicked out of school, separated from all he ever knew or loved. What would have happened if somebody had gotten a hold of that kid and went, Your life sucks, but I'm going to walk with you, and we're going to make it through together. You are not alone. See, when we get into the army and they tell us that to shoot out at those targets, they, they never give us pictures of people to shoot at. I was always curious. Well, we're going into war and we're going to shoot at people. Why aren't we giving pictures of people? And they go, because we don't want you shooting at people. Because man was never designed to kill people. But now if we make everybody, everything a green target, and when you go out into combat and all you see is paper and green targets, it gets real easy to pull that trigger because there's something other. Well, the logic holds in the reverse, doesn't it? If we go out and we reach out to these people and suddenly they become part of the human family, it gets a lot harder to pull that trigger. We don't have a gun problem in this country. Gun control is kind of a silly word because if I set a gun on the table, it doesn't do anything. I don't need to control it. I've never had a gun in all my years as gunsmith, as a shooter, as a sports enthusiast, jump up and shoot at me. We have a heart problem, a people problem, because we have people who are lost and sick and dying and alone and afraid and hungry and thirsty and tired and beat up and beat down in trials and tribulations who are ignored, unloved, and forgotten. And the amazing thing is, though, is all of those are fixable, are changeable. You don't even need a miracle to do it. You need a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a shoulder to lean on. It says in Titus 3, 3, For we were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. It's hard to be self-righteous when you recognize yourself as a slave to sin. It's hard to declare I am free from any burden when I realize the only reason I am saved is because I was set free of a trap that I dug. I am freed from the snare I built. And day by day, Christ keeps pulling me out because as people, we are so stubborn. We jump in the pit and we say, oh, I'm stuck, help me, help me, help me. And so Jesus reaches in, he pulls us out and he sets us on the side. And then we go, well, you know, I bet I can make it out this time. We jump back in the pit. Oh, help me, help me, help me, help me. Jesus pulls it out and he says, now knock it off. And before he even gets off out of his mouth, we're headed back to the pit. We're people, we're broken, we're lost. But we're also amazing. Made in the image of God. Able to love the lost. The dying. Sick. The broken. I will make you a guarantee. I can't make many of these. But I can make a 100% guarantee on this. If you go out. And serve these people. You will see God move in amazing ways. You will see lives Changed. Eternities altered. Worlds rebuilt from the foundation up. And God will use you to do it. And once He does it once, you're done. Cause that's all you're ever gonna wanna do again. For those of you who have ever led someone to Christ, you know what I'm talking about. You spend a week floating on the clouds going, I can't believe God let me do that, and that was amazing, and then you're just like a predator. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? I need to talk to you about Jesus. You chase people down. Because it's the most amazing, incredible thing in the world. So, God cares. God obviously cares. He lays out this through all of the New Testament. Jesus say, uh, said, I came to seek and save the lost. His very foundation is going to the broken. So what do we do? Go feed a hungry person. And then tell them about the God who gave you living water and bread of life. Invite a stranger into your world and tell them about a sinner God died for. Clothe the destitute and share the immortality Christ freely wrapped you in. Visit the sick and show them a dead man made well. Go out and reach the prisoner and say all men can be free. Take up the call of the fringe missionary. That we stand out in the world and proudly declare I am fringe people. Because as memory fades, I know but two things. I am a terrible sinner, but I serve a great God. Amen. So as we close in prayer, find those people. You're surrounded by people in desperate need. Find those people. See those people. Serve. And care for those people and recognize that you are those people to someone else. Let's pray.